So, you've all had an opportunity already to hear Rob. He's going to present another figure in a very important set of lessons from the American founding period. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It is uh, really uh, fantastic to be able to, to join you all um, after dinner. And it's really exciting to be able to talk about George Washington. Um, I think he's a person who uh, we used to habitually honor. Um, we would always celebrate his birthday. I don't think we, we focus on him nearly as much as we should anymore. Um, instead of celebrating Washington's birthday, we have President's Day. So many of the presidents really don't deserve much, much celebration. Um, a couple people uh, are celebrating birthdays today or, or near today. Um, I wanted to mention, first of all, that, that the Cato Institute's very own Ashley Benson is celebrating her birthday. So a round of applause. And uh, I hope I'm not missing any other uh, near birthdays, but in, in just a couple of days, um, our, our co-participant uh, Bjorn Alstrom is celebrating uh, his birthday as well. So we should have a round of applause for him. And it could be rude. It could be rude to uh, give away someone's age. So I won't. I won't. I'm going to be general here. I won't be specific. But one of them. One of them has a very big milestone. One of them will be turning 80. So uh, that is a great accomplishment. And uh, you know, when we think about celebrating George Washington and um, the uh, the the ideas for which he stood, I, I think it's it's worth considering not just what George Washington did. But maybe even more important, what George Washington did not do. And, and, and that's really the, uh, the topic of my talk tonight. Um, George Washington, of course, is a member of the Continental Congress at the time before the Declaration of Independence. Washington, um, a delegate from Virginia, um, was present when the, the Continental Congress received word um, that, that war had broken out. And, and one of the first things that people had to consider was, well, if we're going to fight a war, I suppose we need an army. And if we need an army, I suppose we need someone to command that army. Who should that person be? And I, I, George Washington had a lot going for him. Um, Washington was uh, a man who, among other things, was a veteran of the French and Indian War. And he was one of the few veterans of the French and Indian War uh, who was young enough during that war, to still be young enough during the Revolu Revolutionary War to, to expose himself to the vigors of the field um, and, and the difficulties that would um, coincide with command. He was fit, he was able, um, he was in his early 40s. George Washington, of course, during the French and Indian War, um, when it was in his early 20s. And uh, he uh, certainly had an exalted kind of status through family connections, as, as well as um, the, the leaders of Virginia having a, a good discerning eye for talent. He was a full bird colonel in the Virginia militia by the age of 23. So here's a man who you know, had really um, seen some action, um, who had really uh, demonstrated his capacity for command. Not that he won every battle in which he was involved, but he learned a lot from the battles in which he was involved. And here's a man who, subsequent to the French and Indian War, um, despite the British uh, denial 
of what was then his great desire to, to do what people in Britain did. He wanted to buy a commission as an officer in the British Army. And the British, you know, a, a, as they began to do after the French and Indian War, as they were studying um, this great book that they had bought, How to uh, Lose an Empire for, for Dummies, um, the British denied George Washington the opportunity to do this. He was too much of a provincial. He wasn't really English. What a, what a mistake. What a tragic mistake that they made. I mean, just imagine how history might have been different had they done otherwise. Uh, but he was not deterred, and he continued to read. And for a man who was never able to, to, to go to college, to his great mortification, he really always felt self-conscious about his relative lack of education compared to some of the other leading lights of the founding generation. But he was incredibly well-read, and he was an incredibly serious, self-taught student. And the members of the Continental Congress recognized that. He had other things going for him. Um, the revolution, of course, uh, had begun already up in Massachusetts. Massachusetts and the other New England states, they had skin in the game. Their blood had been spilled. There was no question about their commitment, about their loyalty to this cause. But the rest of the colonies were affected in a much more peripheral way. So it was important that George Washington was a Virginian, that Virginia through George Washington could be brought into this conflict, and with Virginia, the rest of the southern states. It was called a Continental Army, but that was really an aspirational name. But, but George Washington possessed the potential to make that aspiration a reality. There's, there's the fact uh, of his stature. You know, he's six foot three inches tall. Um, he's great on horseback. There's a wonderful story. Um, in 1772, Charles Wilson Peale was down at Mount Vernon painting George Washington's uh, portrait. And uh, as Peale describes it, there were a number of young men um, out, out uh, in front of the uh, Potomac at Mount Vernon, and they were all uh, stripped to the waist, which I think back then just made, they took their top coats off. But whatever, here are a bunch of guys who, they were uh, engaged in a, a sport that was popular at the time. Um, it was throwing an iron rod. Uh, and seeing how far you could throw this iron rod. And Washington heard that it was going on out, outside, and there was this one young man who, um, you know, had achieved some significant success at, at throwing this thing. And Washington walked up, didn't remove his coat, always the gentleman, and, uh, and he said, here, let me try. And he hurled the thing twice as far as this young, you know, 20-year-old uh, guy. And Washington, you know, kind of dusted his hands off, and he said, um, summon for me, gentlemen, when you beat my mark, right? So uh, this, is, this is who George Washington is. Um, he has so much going for him. He has this great command presence. He has this, uh, this great uh, character, this great reputation, this great degree of experience. And the really great thing about his, his experience from the standpoint of the Continental Congress is that George Washington, while he has time in uniform, the bulk of his adult life has been spent as a civilian legislator. I mean, the, the, the Anglo-American mind was very much focused upon the, the danger, the potential danger that armies could pose. This, this uh, notion that armies could rise up and overturn civilian governments, th th this is not a new thing. This has been going on for a very, very long time. And, and so they had a, a healthy degree of fear 
about creating a continental army. I mean, this is an army that at least potentially in 1775 has to be powerful enough to defeat the British in battle. The British army, the most powerful army on the planet. And yet, the Continental Army can't be so powerful that it uh, poses a threat to the liberty for which this revolution is being fought in the first place. The fact that George Washington was one of them, the fact that he was a civilian legislator, the fact that he would defer to the will and the control of, of the civilians in Congress, that too was very important. He was one of the richest men in Virginia. That was a plus. They thought that that meant that he would be disinterested. He had nothing to gain, nothing materially to gain from his service as head of the Continental Army. Um, he agreed to, to serve without pay. He saw public office as a duty and as a burden. It certainly wasn't a joy. And uh, this was one of the things that made him um, worthy of this post as well. Washington had a favorite play. We, don't, we oftentimes don't think of George Washington you know, loving the theater, but he did. He had a favorite play. It was by um, a fellow member of the Virginia House of Burgesses named Robert Munford, um, published in, in, in 1770 and performed in 1770 called The Candidates. And The Candidates, it's really instructive uh, about political culture right on the eve of the American Revolution. In The Candidates, uh, we have a number of, of characters um, one is, is sort of this classic, at least from our perspective, classic, uh, sycophantic, cheesy politician named Sir John Toddy. And he had a handler, right? He had his own Karl Rove, his own Axelrod, uh, a man named uh, Guzzle, who was his assistant. And he would approach voters uh, who were in this play. One of them was named Prize. I suppose his vote was the real prize. Sir John Toddy said, uh, gentlemen and ladies, your servant, ha, right? So he claims to be their servant. My old friend Prize, he says, addressing this voter in the audience, how goes it? How does your wife and children do? And then in a stage whisper, Prize says, how the devil came he to know me so well? and never spoke to me before in his life. Surprise so is on to him. And then we see how, how, how uh, he in fact knew Prize's name. Guzzle uh, whispers into Sir John Toddy's ear. Um, he, he says, this man over here, Roger Twist, that's his name. And Sir John says, ha, Mr. Roger Twist, your servant, sir. I hope your wife and children are well. And then Twist, he, he, he blows his cover. He says, there's my wife. I have no children at your service. All right, so we, we see what this politician is, is up to. Now, Guzzle, his handler, he tries to, to whip up um, the, the crowd uh, into a frenzy. Um, he tries to discredit one of Roger Twist's opponents. Um, he approaches, approaches a man, another candidate, named uh, Mr. Woodby, uh, Mr. Woodby office holder. Um, suppose, Mr. Woodby, were we to want you to get the price of rum lowered, would you do it? And Woodby says, I, I could not. How could I possibly do that? And Guzzle says, huzzah for Sir John. He has promised to do it. Huzzah for Sir John. And then there is uh, Worthy. Worthy is already uh, elected to office. And he's, he's worthy of, of his position. And uh, he speaks uh, some words of wisdom to Woodby. Worthy says, I have little inclination to service. You know my aversion to public life, would be. 
and how little I have ever courted the people for the troublesome office they have hitherto imposed on me. Office is an imposition. Public service, it's real service. It's hard. It's better to be at home. It's better to be under your own vine and your own fig tree. It's better to be enjoying private life. But there's a reason to do it. There is a reason to step forward and answer your countryman's call. As Woodby says, I believe you enjoy as much domestic happiness as any person, and that your aversion to a public life proceeds from the pleasure you find at home. But, sir, it is surely the duty of every man who has abilities to serve his country, to take up the burden and bear it with patience. And uh, George Washington, of course, would bear that burden with patience throughout the War for Independence. A long war, a heavy burden. And, and what added to that heavy burden was the fact that Washington agreed that he was going to wage this war in a way that would not endanger liberty, a way that would instead advance liberty. And what a rare war that is. War almost always is injurious to liberty. I quoted James Madison earlier. He's worth quoting again. Of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. And then Madison goes on to list them. Standing armies, taxes, debts, incursions upon people's civil liberty. I mean, these are all the casualties of war. It's not just our lives, it's not just our fortunes, it's our freedom that's imperiled by war. It's not that you're, you should be a pacifist. It's not that there are wars that, that aren't worth fighting. But you need to be very careful and take very seriously how you go about waging them. And the Continental Congress, they had confidence that Washington was the man to do that. Now, it was perhaps easier to lead the Continental Army in the beginning than it would be later on in the war. Um, great historian named Charles Royster um, has written a book where he, he identifies the first few months of the war. He calls uh, them this time of the rage militaire. Great deal of, of, of spirit demonstrated by the American people um, against the British, especially uh, you know, after Lexington and Concord. But, but even before, William Milne, a British traveler, is in the, the, the South in March of 1775, a month before the war actually begins, a month before the shot heard round the world. Um, and he records in, in, in his uh, travel log, he says, as to politics, I think most of the people are mad, i.e. they're crazy. In South and North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, they muster as if they're about to be attacked. And, and that spirit, it's, it's ably demonstrated at Lexington and at Concord, especially at Concord. You know, it's funny, um, we, we combine these two battles when we talk about the first big battle of the American Revolution, Lexington and Concord, um, the truth is, Lexington, it was really not that impressive. Um, you know, the British, they march out toward, toward Concord. They have to pass through Lexington. Um, the sun has, has, has just risen on the horizon. It's dawn. These Minutemen had been summoned from their homes. Um, they really didn't know what to do. Here comes the British Army. Uh, a few shots are fired, and, and they, they pretty much clear the battlefield. It's not our most glorious moment. But we do stand our ground in Concord at the Old North Bridge. We turn the British back. And uh, as the British make their retreat, and they march the, the, the 15 or 16 miles back to Boston, people 
already. The word has gone out. You know, the, the, the alert has been sounded. People from all the surrounding towns are descending upon this road. The British, they're just trying to get back as, in as orderly a manner as possible. Um, but they're marching down this road. On different sides of this road, you have farms with their stone fences. You have woods with their trees. People are sharpshooting them. Among them, Bjorn, this is a man who should inspire you, 80-year-old Samuel Wedemore, a resident of Monotomy, Massachusetts. He lives along the road on which the British are retreating, and he's ready. This man is a, a veteran of two wars, including the French and Indian War. This man has uh, his, his musket. This man has two pistols loaded and ready to go. And he's got a sword, a sword that he had stolen um, from the body of a, of a French officer that he had slain during the French and Indian War. And the British come down the road, and he's behind his stone fence. An 80-year-old Samuel Wedemore aims his musket, and he fires, and down goes a red coat. He aims his musket again. And he fires, and down goes a second red coat. And at this point, the red coats are looking around. They finally identify um, him. They, they, they charge the stone fence with their bayonets drawn. Meanwhile, he's got both of his pistols. And then he fires one, and he fires another, and down goes a third red coat. And now they're stabbing him as he flails about with his sword. They're stabbing him with their bayonets. And I mean, this is. It's a, it's a great story in part because it's true, um, and it's a great story in part because it, it involves all the, the numbers of sort of the, the cosmology of the revolution. How many times do you guess they stabbed him? Thirteen times, right? One for each, one for each colony. They stab him thirteen times, and they leave him for dead. But guess what? He lives! He lives for another 18 years to die a citizen, a 98-year-old citizen of the free and independent United States. And it's true. It's a true story. Meanwhile, up in a second-floor window, his 76-year-old wife, Faith Whittemore, is up there with a crossbow. <laughs> That's not true. That part isn't true, but the first part is true. So, I mean, there was a great deal of enthusiasm. But that enthusiasm began to dissipate. We had some early victories, but we had some early tragedies. And Bunker Hill, it's a moral victory, but it's, it's a loss. We lost Bunker Hill. We lost some great people there. They really showed their willingness to fight. They really showed their fortitude. But soon, the British would evacuate Boston. The fighting would, would turn toward New York. Washington, under political pressure, bowing to the, the will of the Continental Congress, would, would engage the British there, probably against his best military instincts. Um, the war did not go well as you move into 1776. It's one thing to declare independence. It's another thing to actually secure it. It's another thing to actually fight for it, to actually win it. By the end of the year, it's Tom Paine writing that these are the times that try men's souls. And Washington, he's trying to think carefully about, you know, what should his strategy to be? How should he win this war? Should this be a short war? Would it be better for us if it were a long war? He, he seems to identify uh, as a role model, um, you know, an ancient uh, Roman general, Quintus Fabius Maximus. 
his, uh, he's famous for his tactics. He's famous for uh, not exposing his army to unnecessary danger. He's famous for picking his battles with care. His name, uh, I suppose we could translate, he's like big or fat Fabian V. I couldn't find, they didn't have photographs back then, so I don't have a photograph of Fat Fabian, but I, I do have one of Fat Albert, so I'll let him be the, uh, the stand-in. But, you know, when Washington, at the end of the year, on Christmas Day, when he decides to cross the Delaware and surprise the, the Hessians at Trenton, um, he knows that time is running out. He knows that the enlistments of, of many people in his army are, are going to be up on January 1st. His army may be able to just walk away. He might you know, no longer have men to command. He needs to use these men. It's very unconventional to, to engage in fighting in the wintertime. It's very unconventional to, to cross an ice-choked ice river, but he decides to do it. This is his great opportunity. He can, can use the benefit of surprise, um, traveling under the darkness of night, um, and, and, and this is worth a shot. It, this is a time when it's worth rolling the dice. There's Fabian riding the boat, listening a little bit to the left, perhaps. Um, and, and Washington wins, you know? The strategy pays off. It is not without controversy. John Adams, a member of the, the Continental Congress, he says, Fabius was wise and brave, but zeal and fire and activity and enterprise Strike my imagination too much. My toast is a short and violent war. The war would turn out to be violent, but it would not be short. And, and that is perhaps to our advantage. We uh, needed not so much to defeat the British as we needed to outlast the British. And we needed not only uh, to win battles on battlefields, but we needed to, to win a war for hearts and minds. Adams also um, predicted in 1776, pretty famously, that uh, you know, short of a Gallup poll, his best estimate was that you could divide the American people into thirds. A third supported independence, but a third, they were loyalists. They were Tories. They still wanted um, to remain part of Great Britain. And then a third were, were sort of on the fence. A third were... were situational in their loyalties. And we needed to win those people over. And over the course of this war, we did. You know, if ever anyone needed a Dale Carnegie course, if ever anyone needed to learn how to win friends and influence people, it was the British Army. And they did not win friends. But they did tend to influence people. Wherever they went, people might act as if they were loyal to the crown. But as soon as the British left, as soon as they were gone, you know, people who said, God save George III, began to say, God save George Washington. The, the, the British engaged in some really um, poor tactics. They, 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 they worked um, some real travesties against the American civilian population. Not as bad as some armies did. They weren't the worst in history by any means. You read Thucydides or Herodotus for that sort of thing. Um, they weren't as bad as depicted in uh, the, the, the movie the, the, the Patriot, right? They didn't lock people in churches and burn them down. But they did do some pretty dastardly things. And one of the stories um, that comes to us from that time is the story of, of the British trying to secure the Hudson River Valley. 
you know, the Hudson River, they thought, um, and specifically West Point, which Washington ordered fortified, that was the key to the continent. Because the British, the, the theory was the war began really in New England. And if we could somehow cut New England off, if we could isolate New England, we could stop the spread of this contagion of revolution. And the Hudson River, that's the way to do it. So as the British try to sub subdue the Hudson River Valley, um, they, they work with Native Americans to target the local patriot population. So the offer is made to the Native Americans, go get us the scalps of supporters of this rev revolution, and we will pay you by the scalp. Now, I, I'm guessing that the, the local Indians had difficulty identifying and distinguishing between a patriot scalp and a loyalist scalp. I think most of us would have that sort of difficulty. And what motivated them was just getting scalps so they could you know, get, the, get the reward. Meanwhile, the British, some of them, they're trying really hard to get along with the civilian population. Some of them are getting along swimmingly with the civilian population. There's a story of a young lieutenant who uh, is uh, you know, this dashing sort of figure, a member of the British Army, and uh, there's a young local loyalist woman named Jane McRae. Beautiful woman, um, very sweet, well-liked by all, um, with uh, long, flowing red hair. And as the story goes, the British lieutenant is present when the Indians are um, pulling the scalps from their bag, and he's counting out the money, and he reaches into the bag, the Native American does, and out should come the unmistakable, long, red, flowing locks of his now deceased fiance, Jane McRae. And there's some debate about whether the story is true or false or exactly how it happened. If you go up the Hudson River, you, there are monuments to Jane McRae. Um, but Washington, he doesn't waste any time, and he, and he doesn't um, hesitate to continue telling this story for years afterwards. Because it's important for the American people to see what their loyalty to Britain might secure for them. He, he in 1780 even, is warning Americans to repel an enemy from your borders who not content with hiring mercenaries to lay waste your country. The Hessians have now bought savages with the avowed and expressed intention of adding murder to desolation. So over time, John Adams' estimation of one-third and one-third and one-third begins to shift, it begins to change. Over time, far more Americans are going to identify with the cause of independence, and far fewer are going to support remaining with Great Britain, in part because some leave. You know, some are going to first move to New York City, some will move to Canada, some will move to the Caribbean, some will move back across the ocean. But many change their minds. Many are alienated by this army that has come to protect them, that has come to rescue them from these revolutionaries. It becomes pretty clear that the revolutionaries are the ones who are on the side of law and order and liberty um, and, and not the people in red coats. It's a long and ruling war. The British have plenty of resources. Uh, they, have, they have skilled uh, military practitioners. Their army is, is, is quite professional, at least the, the leadership of it is. But then Lord Cornwallis in the south, where the army sort of shifts um, after the Battle of Saratoga, that great victory in the north that helped the French 
um, decide to, to come in on our side. When the war shifts uh, to the south, Cornwallis, he has some, some, some great victories. But then, you know, he makes a, a mistake. And, I, you know, when I'm teaching cadets at West Point as a civilian, I'm very hesitant to give them advice about um, military matter, matters. I don't have any great experience, not firsthand. But there is one thing that I do feel comfortable telling them. Don't retreat to a peninsula, right? <laughs> Don't do it. Don't retreat to a peninsula. Lord Cornwallis does. Right? Lord, Lord Cornwallis, he, he brings his army uh, to, to Yorktown. Washington gets wind of this. Washington's all the way up you know, near New York City. And he marches his army down. This army stretched for 30 miles. They tried to, to slip away without the British noticing. They kept the, you know, a, a small rear detachment um, to keep the campfires burning so that they would you know, have a half a day's travel before the British would, would get a wind of what had actually happened. Um, he's traveling down with Rochambeau and the French army and Lafayette. And then, of course, Admiral de Grasse. He comes to the rescue. Um, the, the, the French fleet arrives on the coast of Yorktown, not as Cornwallis had expected the British fleet. And he's surrounded, and this is sort of a classic siege. And finally, he raises the white flag. And uh, at the surrender ceremony, Lord Cornwallis calls in sick. He's too, too ill to turn over his sword. So he sends his second in command. And his second in command uh, tries to give the sword, his sword to Rochambeau. Ooh, what a diss, right? You know? I mean, we're the independent nation. That's the whole point of this thing. So Rochambeau, he points to Washington. So then the second in command, the British officer, he tries to hand his sword to Washington. Washington's not falling for this, you know? That's the British second in command. He's George Washington. He points his finger to Major uh, General Lincoln um, and, and his second command and says, give it to him, surrender it to him. And, uh, and so Washington, you know, this master uh, of ceremony and symbolism um, there on the battlefield uh, sort of asserts our status as an independent and equal nation. Well, the, the, the big battles were over, but the war, of course, was not. Um, we still hadn't negotiated a treaty of peace. In Parliament, the will um, to continue, continue waging this war was waning. Uh, a lot had been lost, a lot had been expended. Um, this, of course, was a war that started because the British wanted to avoid another expensive war like the French and Indian War, where at least they gained a lot of territory. This one, ironically, caused them to lose a lot of territory. The Treaty of Paris would recognize as sovereign territory of the United States all the land up to, to the Mississippi River. But while that treaty was being negotiated, Washington had to uh, do something with his army. He had to keep them around because, uh, you know, they were important leverage. And, and, and so he brought them back up to the Hudson River Valley. Um, they encamped in what is now New Windsor, New York, New, near Newburgh. You have thousands of soldiers, hundreds of officers. They're, they're, they're spending a long period of time there. They, and they're doing what armies do, typically, I think, doesn't matter what nation it is, doesn't matter what time it is, but throughout time, this is what armies do. When they're not engaged in battle, when they're just kind of hanging around, they complain. They complain. They complain about poor pay, poor provisions. They complain that when the war is finally officially done, 
Um, they feel that they'll be abandoned by the civilian governments that have made some promises to them that they consider to be empty. Some want to uh, assert and insist that they should have um, pensions for a period of time or half pay for life or gifts of, of certain amounts of land. Some, some actually at Newburgh uh, begin to conspire and they begin to whisper that maybe what they should do is uh, use their, their presence. They have leverage at this point. Let's use that leverage to, to get what they felt they had coming to them. Let's march the army west and leave the United States undefended. Or let's march down to Philadelphia and force the Continental Congress to do what's right. And, and Washington, he got wind of this, as well as letters. People are writing him letters saying that he should be the king, including one of his own lieutenant colonels, a man named Louis Nicola. Washington gets this letter. He tears, his up, tears it up. He says it fills him with, with the utmost horror and detestation. And he hears news of this conspiracy. He calls all of his officers together uh, for a meeting in this log structure, uh, which has since been given the name the Temple of Virtue. The Temple of Virtue. Because here Washington reminds them how leaders are supposed to act. Here Washington reminds them um, what, it, what public service is all about. He uh, begins his remarks. He calls upon them to look with utmost horror and detestation on anyone who wishes, under any specious pretenses, to overturn the liberties of our country. And, and then, in an unscripted moment, he uh, fumbles for his glasses. No one's ever seen him put on glasses before. No one except his closest aides. Washington has these spectacles. At the time, glasses were, were really seen as a, a sign of infirmity, as a sign of real old age, as a sign really of weakness. So what an affecting sight for George Washington, the, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, to be squinting and to be putting on his glasses. And he, and he, and he says, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only gray, but, but almost blind in your service. And, and these men there in that audience, at this moment, to, to whatever degree there was a real conspiracy, it, it just dissipated. According to those who were present, there, people, grown men, hardened war veterans, began to break down and, and, and sob. I mean, here was George Washington, a man who had been with the army since almost the very beginning. Here was George Washington, who had exposed himself to every danger, to every hardship. Here's George Washington, a man with bullet holes in his coat. A man who refused to accept any pay. Here's George Washington, the richest man in all of Virginia, who easily could have just happily paid his taxes, or happily evaded them, but not exposed himself to all of the danger, to all of the, the, the trouble, to all of the work, to all of the toil. Here's a real patriot who's risked everything. And, and here they were grumbling about pay. So Washington at this moment, at this moment, this is truly a moment when he stops the army from snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. 
This is truly a moment where Washington saves the day, where Washington rescues this revolution from what he and the members of the Continental Congress had considered its greatest danger. That despite whatever battlefield successes we might enjoy, that, that, that our military success might end up undermining the, the whole purpose of this revolution in the first place. Perhaps the greatest moment, the greatest moment in Washington's life, a life full of great moments, is, is when he goes down to Annapolis. And here we are in, in the city that bears his name, um, 40, 45 minutes away is Annapolis with this great Capitol building. The Continental Congress was meeting there in December of 1783 after the, uh, the signing of the Treaty of Paris. And Washington, after farewelling his, his officers, after having this sort of triumphal procession um, from the Hudson Valley through New York City down to Annapolis, he tenders his resignation. George III, he thought he would never do it. George III heard rumors that George Washington was actually going to resign at the end of the, the revolution and not, as, as so many military leaders had done and would continue to do, assume power and, and, and seize power. George III, supposedly, when he heard this rumor, laughed and he said, what? If he does that, he truly is the world's greatest man. And, and Washington was. At this moment, he, he addressed the, uh, the Continental Congress. He said, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted. I here offer my commission and take leave of all the employments of public life. And at that moment, General Washington became Citizen Washington. And he returns home in time for Christmas. He returns home to Martha. He returns home to Mount Vernon. He returns home to private life. And uh, in the early part of the revolution, a lot of people compared George Washington to Moses. You know, Moses, who, who led his people from slavery to freedom. But, but now at the end of the revolution, given his resignation, a lot of people are beginning to compare him to, to Cincinnatus, you know, another Roman figure who um, fought for Rome, uh, won the war, but rather than seizing power, um, stared down that temptation and happily returned um, to his vine and his fig tree, picked up the plow um, that he had put down when he first picked up his sword. Washington uh, would be famous for this. He's memorialized for this in the Virginia State Capitol um, by the great uh, French sculptor uh, John Antoine Houdon. Um, you see Washington there with his sword uh, put away at his side, and his hand is a civilian walking stick. And behind him is a plow. He's gone back to the, the, the private life of a farmer. So George Washington um, is a man who would continue to uh, answer calls to serve his country. Um, his greatest possession, I mean, he's a rich man, but his greatest possession is his reputation. That, that's really what he wants to preserve. But he hazards that, too. He hazards that when his friend, James Madison, issues to him an urgent call to preside over what is really kind of an extra-legal body, the, the, the Constitutional Convention. In May of 1787, in Philadelphia, the people who gather together to draw up this new constitution, of all the things that they need, 
What they need most is legitimacy. And, and what could engender legitimacy more than the presence of George Washington presiding over this assemblage, lending his credibility to it? Washington, of course, would be elected as our first president. A man who uh, was not hesitant in, in expressing his great fear that his reputation would probably be not, as, be not uh, as strong when he left this office as when he began it. And he was probably right. I mean, Washington as president would have to make a number of controversial decisions. But make them he did, in part because he believed that he was the one, if, if someone had to be president, everybody said, no one could do it like you. No one can unite us like you. No one can reassure us like you. No one can be trusted like you. Because only you have looked at power, stared it in the face, and given it back to the people. Government is not about the accumulation of power. Not, not the government of our revolution. Government is about empowering people. Government is not about giving office holders permanent authority. Government is about authorizing office holders to act in limited and specific ways in the name of the people. Government is not so much about power. Government, at least in our tradition, at least in Washington's tradition, is about the protection, the preservation of individual rights. And in Washington's great and final achievement, once again he retires. Once again, after two terms, he steps down. Once again, he returns to Mount Vernon. I, I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Um, this is my fourth and, and final talk. Um, tomorrow is our last full day, and then we get to enjoy a, a wonderful lecture on Friday morning. Um, anyway, I, I've mentioned to, to a couple of you, uh, my, my kids and my wife, uh, who have been with me. Some of you met my wife last night. Um, I, have, I have a five-year-old and a, and a seven-year-old. My seven-year-old, his name is, is Jefferson. Um, my my five-year-old, her name is Grace. And uh, we love coming to these conferences and, uh, and traveling around and you know, visiting the sites. And a few years ago, we were in Philadelphia uh, for a conference. And one afternoon, we, we had the afternoon off, and we went to uh, Independence Hall, and we went to see the Betsy Ross house. And then we had uh, dinner at the City Tavern in Philadelphia, which is this recreated um, inn where the members of the Continental Congress took their meals. And uh, as we were eating and finishing up, uh, Jefferson, who was then just about three years old, expressed his great desire to see the Liberty Bell. He really wanted to see it. He'd heard about it. Um, he wanted to see it. We were nervous. We didn't know that it would be open. Um, but uh, it was approaching 7 o'clock. Maybe they would still be there. Um, we made our way over. And, you know, uh, Grace, she was still uh, just, just about one. Um, I'm not sure that she remembers this very well. Uh, Jefferson, you know, he was a typical three-year-old boy. He, uh, you know, loved trucks and uh, Bob the Builder. He had a Bob the Builder toolkit um, that he was he prized very much, you know, with a hammer and a saw and, you know, the whole bit. But anyway, we go into uh, the Liberty Bell Pavilion. We're the last people that they allow in. At 6.55, and we start uh, talking with a very nice park ranger who was standing by the Liberty Bell, and uh, he learned that my son's name was Jefferson. 
And he loved that, right? Because he's a park ranger at the Liberty Bell. He thinks this is fantastic. And then he, he learned that I, I was a history professor. We started talking about some books and stuff. And uh, he really warmed up to this very kind man. He uh, leaned forward and, and, he, and he sort of half whispered. He said, um, do you want me to let him touch the bell? And, and, and I had two thoughts. My first thought was, is this how our federal government protects our precious <laughs> historical resources? And then my second was, was, heck yes, heck yes. So Jefferson reached me, he touched the Liberty Bell. But afterwards, he was very concerned. He was very, very worried. Um, he said to me, Daddy, it's cracked. The, the Liberty Bell is cracked. And, and, and then he kind of paused. And, and maybe thinking of his Bob the Builder toolkit, he said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it with my tools. And I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to wrap up uh, by thanking all of you for, for your support for the Cato Institute. And I wanted to wrap up by thanking everybody who, who, who works for the Cato Institute for, for all that they do um, to support the cause of liberty, to provide all of us with the tools that are necessary to repair liberty, to preserve liberty, to advance liberty. Um, I don't think there's any other job that, I mean, maybe, maybe there are some. I don't know what they are. I think it's just about the most important thing you could possibly do, the most necessary thing you could possibly do. Um, so thank all of you, um, and thank all of, all of you, all of you at the Cato Institute. Um, you're really doing uh, a great work. And uh, if he were here in this city that has stolen his name and perverted it in so many nefarious ways, at least in this place, I think George Washington would be very, very proud. Thank you. Tom, do we have, we have time for a few questions? About, about three questions. So any questions, comments? Uh, I, if you could, there you go. Invisible armies. I'm not. It's a book that's been written that talks about the importance of propaganda in war and how um, the British really gave up the war apparently um, over in Britain when they were persuaded not to continue it, not, but it was, it was too costly to continue it. Um, and, and it was sort of a propaganda uh, apparently the marketing against the war that apparently Franklin and other people were doing. Um, I'm just curious if you could comment about how propaganda was used in uh, the American Revolution, both on our side and perhaps in Britain. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it, it certainly is used. Uh, there are newspapers, we complain nowadays, people will, will comment on how um, our press is increasingly biased, and uh, newspapers increasingly don't really just tell the facts, but they, they spin them. And, you know, we have liberal newspapers, conservative newspapers, 
you know, publications of all different sorts of stripes. Um, that's not a new thing. Um, we are perhaps moving in a new direction from uh, a period where journalism was supposed to be more objective. But at the time of the American Revolution, it was very clear. Um, newspapers were either loyalist or, or they were patriot. And uh, in general, the patriot uh, newspapers dominated. The loyalist newspapers um, were in, in parts of the United States that were occupied by the British. There were some that were a little bit more moderate that, that got along in, in parts that, that were not. Um, but the loyalist press uh, put out a good, good number of things. And there were a number of pamphlets and handbills um, there's one rumor that the British uh, tried to start. Um, they, they published what they claimed to be um, correspondence of George Washington's that they had seized, where Washington uh, not only expresses his doubts about the, uh, the goodness of the cause of independence, um, but also they reveal his correspondence to his supposed mistress. Right? Completely made up stuff. Um, but the British are certainly not above this sort of thing. And, and I suppose we aren't either. Uh, you know, when you think about American propagandists, I mean, we, we, we tended, I don't, I can't, uh, I don't want to say that there were no examples of Americans spreading uh, things that weren't true. I almost suspect that there must have been. None come to mind. Um, but we really made the most of uh, the, the, the bad truth of, of what the British Army did um, and what the British government did. And, and certainly we're not above exposing and exploiting you know, their misdeeds. And the, the, the story of Jane McRae is really a, a prime example of that sort of thing. Washington was a smart man. I mean, he knew that, that the battles were to be won not just on the battlefields, but also we needed to win the, the ascent of the civilian population. And stories like that, they made it all the more easy. So yeah, thank you for that question. Good evening, Bob. Uh, my name is Deepak. I'm a MS Finance student at UMass Boston. Uh, I really enjoyed all of your uh, lectures, and you have excellent ability to tell the stories, and not only that, but you know, take the history with a pinch of salt because we never know what happened in the past, actually, what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So, uh, would you please give some of the, uh, like one of the incidents when uh, George Washington was tempted to expand the powers of the federal government, and he, he might have come to those temptations, or he avoided uh, those temptations. Yeah, so, you know, probably uh, the, the, the part of Washington's career that most people in this room would find the most problematic, including me, um, would be his presidency. Um, as, as president, he, uh, he tried really hard to um, consult the advice of smart people around him. As president, he tried really hard um, to figure out what was the appropriate and proper way to interpret the Constitution. Um, you know, he consulted with important friends who knew what they were talking about, people like Madison, people like uh, Jefferson, but also people like Hamilton. And he really seemed to be sort of under uh, Hamilton's spell. Um, certainly Jefferson and Madison, they had a theory. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a correct one. Um, but they thought that, especially as you work through Washington's two terms, that he becomes progressively more disengaged, um, that he becomes progressively more may, maybe senile, um, that he's just not as mentally sharp, mentally active, mentally on top of it um, as he was in the first part of his administration. And you know, Jefferson is going to, to leave the, the cabinet 
1793. Hamilton's going to leave the cabinet a year later, but the truth is Hamilton never leaves the cabinet. I mean, Hamilton might go back to private practice as an attorney in New York City, but he continues to exert a tremendous amount of influence upon the other members of Washington's administration. And, and through them, it seems that he exerts a tremendous amount of influence on George Washington. Um, things like the Jay Treaty, um, things like Washington's response to the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, I, personally, I, I think the Whiskey Rebellion is uh, an example of the government um, acting with an incredibly heavy hand, a dangerously heavy hand. We dispatched 15,000 troops into western Pennsylvania. I mean, that's more American soldiers than were present at our victory at Yorktown. An incredible army, an incredible show of force. You know, a show of force that, that no doubt was designed to intimidate and, 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 and make disappear this, this, re, this rebellion to whatever extent it existed. But a show of force that easily could have backfired and, and um, confirmed the narrative that many Americans were, were uh, adopting. That this government, which was supposed to be protecting our rights, was increasingly endangering them. So uh, Washington, his, his presidency is certainly not without controversy. Um, and, you know, his actions, I, I think, are, are certainly not above questioning. But he never acted, he never did anything because he thought uh, it was the wrong thing to do. I mean, he always acted because he thought that it was the right thing to do. Um, we might disagree with his judgment, um, but I have to say, uh, you know, of all the people whose judgment I might trust, it's, it's hard to find anyone better than, uh, than George Washington. So we have time for, for one more question, okay? So uh, I, I don't know, Chip, you're there with the microphone. You, you, you tell me. You, you tell me. <laughs> well, I, I see a hand up right next to you, so. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for devoting you know, five hours of your time cumulatively. It's been a pleasure to hear from your lectures. Um, I came away with two things from your presentation uh, tonight. One, uh, you made a, a good point, I thought, about the Revolutionary War being one where it was really a question about outlasting the British. And, uh, and then the other point you made where we had a leader in Washington who was not only a man of great intellect, but of extreme fortitude and honor and so on. And so I, I was just wondering, in light of those two things, you know, a great commander and a kind of an interesting objective militarily, uh, would it have been possible, in, in your opinion, to have won the war without French aid at all? And I'm not saying that to bash France or anything. I, I right. I, I'm, I'm purely asking because it, you know, it seems like this man was a one-of-a-kind military leader, you know, and, and it was a question about last thing. So I just wanted your uh, comments on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, obviously we'll never really know the answer. I mean, you know, it's a counterfactual question. Um, we, we, we can't put the uh, Continental Army in a laboratory experiment and remove the French variable and, and, and see how, how it works. Um, it seems to me that it would have been certainly more difficult to win the, the war with, without French aid, um, not only sending us troops, um, not only providing their navy, but, but also um, providing us with financial assistance um, and moral assistance. That really matters. I mean, even before the French officially come on board, who shows up at this young man, this, this, this dashing bright guy, the Marquis de Lafayette? 
You know, I mean, that, that mattered. It mattered that people on, on the other side of the ocean had heard about us, had heard about what we were up to, had heard about you know, this great experiment, this great gamble, this great risk, this great commitment that we were willing to make for, for liberty, and that they were inspired by it um, and, and wanted to be part of it. So I don't want to underestimate the, the value of all of those contributions. But I do think that in, in some regards, time was on our side. It may have taken more time. But the British, they somehow had to find a way to win this war. And they could move their army around, they could win battles, they could occupy a city for as long as they could stay there. But as soon as they leave, it doesn't guarantee that they've, they've won us over. The, the reality seemed to be that their, their occupation of a city would, would work to alienate people, would work to turn people against them. And in some ways, the longer they stayed, not only did the more resolute Americans come and, and not wanting to be part of the British government and not feeling as if they were really British. I mean, that's a working fiction that we're the same country by the end of this war. Not a, a badly working fiction. But you have the fact that uh, the British, they have to maintain the political will to wage this war. A war that was designed to preserve their territory and, and save them money is now turned into a war where they lost their territory. They lost this continent, most of it, as well as a lot of money, and, and, and most sadly of all, uh, a heck of a lot of lives. So anyway, thank you very much.